Um, a couple of years ago, the London Transit Authority started to receive complaints from their clients. And the clients were complaining that they would be waiting at bus stops and the bus would drive straight past and wouldn't stop to pick them up. So the, the LTA decided to send out an explanation, put it in the newspapers, and it became a notorious public relations disaster. Um, and that, the reason for that is that this is what the explanation said. It said, it is impossible for us to maintain our schedule if we are always having to stop and pick up passengers. <laughs> So, so clearly the LTA had um, <laughs> realized that, well, they'd overlooked what the main thing was, because you would think that a bus company would be looking to pick up passengers. That would be the main thing that you would need to keep the main thing. And Stephen Covey is famous for this quote, which has been used over and over again in the last um, decades. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And of course, the LTA could have avoided disaster if they had reflected on that simple truth. But the same is true for you and I. We need to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing, not only in our, in our individual lives, but also corporately as a church. If we get distracted from what the main thing really is, we're not going to be effective, we're not going to be productive, we're not going to be significant in the kingdom of God. And we want to be significant as a church in the kingdom of God because God has called us to be significant, to bring transformation and change in our town and in our nation. So we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. So let's read from 1 Corinthians, or, uh, 1 Corinthians, well actually 12, the, the last verse in, in chapter 12, it says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We can divide this passage up into three sections. First of all, a principle which states what the main thing is. Second of all, a description of the main thing in verses 4 to 7. And then lastly, an explanation of why the main thing is to be the main thing. We're going to have a look at that today. 
Let me just set the context a little bit from Corinthians. And the point that I'd like to make initially is don't think that I'm preaching about the gifts of the Spirit necessarily at the moment. What's happening is that Paul um, has identified a misuse of the gift of the Spirit and he's addressing that problem. But there's a timeless principle here which we can use to apply to all areas of our lives. So what's happening in the Corinthian church is, first of all, Paul notices that there's a problem with the Lord's Supper. So people are coming, in those days people would come to church, they would bring food with them, and they would have a meal together, and that's how they would share the Lord's Supper. But what was happening in the Corinthian church is that there was a big separation between those who were very wealthy and those who were very poor. So the wealthy people would bring lots of food, and they would actually overindulge. They actually got drunk. They would drink too much. They would eat too much at church. And then there were other poor people who were in part of the congregation who didn't have anything to eat. And they were starving. So what was meant to be something that would unify the body of Christ was actually becoming a source of division, which is a very tragic thing. Then the next problem that they started to experience, or they were experiencing in the Corinthian church, was a misuse of the gifts of the Spirit. So what would happen is somebody would receive a tongue and they would speak it out, but other people would be speaking out tongues at the same time. There wouldn't be a translation of it. Some people would be prophesying and they would be prophesying at the same time, and it was just chaos and bedlam. And so Paul wanted to get to the heart of what the problem really was. And that's why he begins, um, I will show you a most excellent way. He wants to get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem in the Corinthian church was a lack of love. People were not doing things in such a way that they were motivated by love. And so he uses five sample gifts to show that all the gifts are useless unless they're used with a loving motive. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that just about everything that we do, if it's not done from a loving motive, is useless. It's unproductive. It's not significant. So let's have a look at verse 1. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I was trying to think of... We don't often hear resounding gongs or clanging cymbals today. I was trying to think of an equivalent to that. I don't know how many of you live in an area where there are dogs that bark at night. It's awful, isn't it? Our neighbors um, have a dog. Fortunately, it's not Kevin or Natasha. I don't, I don't think they're here today. Um, they've got cats. But, but just down the road, there's this dog, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, it'll just start. Woo, 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 woo. And then you think it's finished, and you're just lying there, and you're just saying, Lord, please do something to that dog. Just give it a heart attack. And then it's... Woo, 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 woo. That's an equivalent to a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What's Paul trying to get at here? He's trying to get at the point that if you're not motivated by love and you're doing something, the result is irritating and it's unproductive. And you see that. Irritating and unproductive if you're using the gift of tongues and you're not motivated by love, if you've got another motivation for doing it. Let's go to verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, so the gift of prophecy, knowledge. If I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, 
I am nothing. Once again, we tend to think, especially in our day and age, that if someone has the faith and the gift of doing miracles, amazing miracles, we tend to think that that person is somebody significant, someone important. And often people will use whatever gift they have. It might be a gift of preaching, it might be a gift of music. Do it to prove that they are in some way significant. But if that is the case, the result is that we are nothing. If I do all of those things without a motivation for love, then I'm nothing. I'd like to draw your attention to two things there. The first thing is that Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy, knowledge, uh, and faith. Why does he talk about a gift? And the reason why he talks about a gift is because um, a gift is given to somebody as a gift. There are no conditions. So if I give a gift to Craig, I'm not giving it to him um, as payment for anything. I'm not giving it to him to reward his performance. I'm just simply giving it as a gift. And so when we receive gifts and talents from God, they're actually gifts that have been given to build up the body of Christ. And we need to use them lovingly to build up the body of Christ. Because if we don't, we're nothing. And folks, it's the same for us as a church. If we want to be significant in the kingdom of God, then whatever gifts and abilities and talents and resources we have need to be used in a loving way. Otherwise, we won't be a significant church in the kingdom of God. We will be nothing. And we don't want to be nothing because God doesn't want us to be nothing. He wants us to be something, a church that represents His glory and brings transformation on this earth. Another point is that... Christ said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. It's so important for us to realize that whatever it is that we're doing must be done to build up other people. And that's what it looks like to be doing it from a motive of love. And if we're doing it to build up other people, then we will gain significance in the kingdom of God. Let's have a look at the last gift that Paul refers to. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. And the Bible is clear that we should live in a way that we qualify for an eternal reward. We want to do things that are going to last forever. But if we do something without the motivation of love, we gain nothing. We aren't going to establish something that has a lasting effect and a lasting influence. So here's the principle that Paul teaches. The main thing in life in our church is to be motivated by love. And without love, we'll fail to be productive. We'll fail to be something special and significant in the kingdom of God. And we'll fail to gain something that's of eternal value. That's why it's so important for us to be motivated by love. Let's have a look at a description of love. And folks, what I'd like to do today is to challenge you. I think I've put this challenge out before. And the challenge is to read through verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 and 
just simply replace can we find it uh, put your own name in there so replace love with your own name Ian is patient Ian is kind Craig does not envy Gail does not boast Lawrence is not proud he does not dishonor others and so on and so forth reading through that and just ask the Holy Spirit to highlight any of those areas that you need to do some work on and I've been through this process I call it a love audit it's just a, a very quick audit to see how we're standing in the love stakes and I just like to pick out three of these first of all love is patient what does it mean to be patient and the reason why I bring this up is because it came up in my own particular love audit. This is an area where I need to work. A person who is patient is prepared to suffer over a prolonged period of time. That's the context here. What do we suffer? Well, we exercise, a patient person exercises self-restraint when bearing with the sins and folly of others. How good are you at that? If we're going to treat somebody in a loving way, now we're not enabling their sin or their bad behavior, but we are in it with them for the long haul. And if they are behaving in a foolish way, or if they're behaving in a sinful way, we still need to exercise patience with them. We need to bear up under the load of their sin and their folly. Because let's face it, if that person is a friend of ours or it's a member of our church or a member of our family, if they're acting in a sinful or a foolish way, it's going to have consequences that affect us. And often what will happen is if, for example, Tony behaves in a sinful way and it has an effect on me, because he's behaving sinfully, I think that it gives me the right to respond in a sinful way. And so if he's behaving sinfully, then I end up behaving sinfully. And of course, that mustn't be the case. What, is, what did your mum say to you when you were a little child? My mum used to say this often. Two wrongs don't make a right. We don't have the right to treat another person sinfully simply because they're behaving in a sinful way. And so if we're being loving with someone, we are bearing up under this, their sin and their folly and being patient with them and recognizing that none of us is, is perfect um, and that we need to be with them, in with them for the long haul. That's what it means to be loving, patient. What about this one? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, we can be so good, can't we, at nursing our resentments, just taking them out and kind of stroking them. And we do it all the time. You know what I find particularly sad, and I did it this last week, and afterwards I was just, I suppose, just disappointed with myself. What, what, what happened was um, I remembered the way somebody had treated me many years ago and on the basis of that I responded to them in the presence um, according to the way they treated me many years ago. So I, if, if I'm getting this across clearly. So I was keeping a record of wrongs. I was remembering the way they were, whatever it was, 10 or 11 years ago. And I was allowing that to influence the way I was relating to them today. That's not a loving thing to do. Because the loving thing says that that person may have 
done those things may have been like that 10 years ago. But they're a, they're a son or a daughter of Christ, and they are being transformed from glory to glory. So don't let's leave them where they were 10 years ago and say that they're still exactly like that. Let's believe the best of that person. Something that came up when I did my love audit. Love is not easily angered. And this is a big one for guys. Why is it a big one for guys? Because it's just somehow a little bit pathetic to say for guys, I think, we, we tend to think this, although it isn't, we tend to think if I were to say, oh, I'm, I'm feeling hurt, it doesn't sound very manly, does it? Or I'm feeling offended. Or I'm, you know, but what normally happens is we respond to all sorts of things with anger because anger is sort of like a manly emotion. So instead of saying, I'm hurt or I'm disappointed, we just say, oh, I'm angry, you know. But it says here that we need to rejoice in the truth, doesn't it? Love rejoices in the truth. We need to get to the bottom of it. What is the true thing? It's very easy for us to use anger to control other people. I, I, I've, I've done this before. It's like I can get much angrier than all of you guys, so just behave. You know? And we can use anger as a tactic to control other people, whether it's our children or whether it's our employees at work. It's not a lovely, loving thing. Love is not easily angered. Love is not self-seeking. The heart of love is seeking the good of other people. You know, how often do we act from the right motives when we're relating to other people? It's, it's tough, isn't it? Because normally when we just spend a little bit of time to think, what is it that, I, that is actually motivating me here? Normally it's about us. We have an unerring ability to make everything about us. And I know because I see it in myself. But it shouldn't be the case. We should be looking to the needs of other people. We should be acknowledging that other people have needs, that other people have desires, that other people have hopes and dreams, just as we do. And we should be treating them as more important. Their, their desires, their dreams, their expectations as more important than our own. But our default setting is to put ours at the top. And so we're not behaving in a loving way. And then lastly, let's have a look at the explanation. Love never fails. Have a look at verse 8. Let's see what... There's a, a good description, a good summary of love. Love is selfless, seeking the good of others first. If we could just simply follow the golden rule of treating other people the way we would like to be treated. That just puts it in a nutshell, doesn't it? Just treat other people the way you would like to be treated. Put them first. Now we come to the reason why love never fails. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Can you see that he's repeating the transience of the spiritual gifts? They're just temporal. And most of the things that we experience in life are temporal. They're not going to last forever. But anything that has been done through a motive of love will have an element to it that will last forever. That's what he's saying there. 
And that's the reason why we need to be motivated for love. Otherwise, the things that we do are just going to have a temporal effect. He then he goes on to say that they're incomplete. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. No matter what gift of knowledge you get, it's not going to give you a complete picture. It's only once you get to heaven that everything is going to be complete. He says, prof, and he, and he uses the illustration of a mirror here. He says, we look dimly as if in a mirror. Now, we don't understand that because normally when we look in a mirror, it's a very crisp image that we see. But the ancients didn't have mirrors like we had today. They just simply had a piece of brass which had been polished up and you could see a dim reflection of yourself. So everything that happens on this earth is temporal and it's incomplete. And the only thing that re remains is faith, hope and love. And of course when we get to heaven, we're not going to need the faith and the hope, will we? The only thing that remains, as Paul tells us here, is love. I'd like you to think for a moment about your life. Everything that you're involved in will come to an end. Your present life, like the gifts of the Spirit, have an, an expiry date. Your work has an expiry date. Your marriage has an expiry date. Your family, your friends, your hobbies, everything has an expiry date. Everything is incomplete. But only one thing will last, and that's love. If we do things in such a way that we're motivated by love, it'll be productive. We as a church will, will become a church of significance in the kingdom of God, doing the things that God wants us to do, having an eternal impact on the people around us. I'd like to just close uh, with two stories. First of all, uh, read from a book of anecdotes written by Moody, D.L. Moody. He says, show me a church where there is love. And I will show you a church that is a power in the community. If we want to be effective, if we want to be significant. In Chicago a few years ago, a little boy attended a church Sunday school I know of. When his parents moved to another part of the city, the little fellow still attended the same Sunday school, although it meant a long, tiresome walk each way. A friend asked him why he went so far and told him that there were plenty of other churches just as good near his home. They may be as good for others, but not for me, was his reply. Why not, she asked. Because there, they love a fellow. If only we could make the world believe that we loved them, there would be fewer empty churches and a smaller proportion of our population who never darken a church door. Let love replace duty in our church relations and the world will soon be evangelized. You need to keep the main thing, the main thing. Ernest Gordon wrote a book entitled The Bridge Over the River Kwai. And in this book, he told the story of Scottish prisoners of war who were building a bridge under duress for the Japanese. Now, as the war progressed, it became harder and harder for the prisoners to survive. And so each of the prisoners became more and more self-absorbed. And, and they just kicked into survival mode. And they started to treat one another atrociously. Things just really degenerated in the camp. And all of this changed one day when a group of the, the prisoners of war were being marched from the construction site back to the camp. 
And between the construction site and the camp, there were a number of checkpoints. And at each checkpoint, they would count the number of men and count the, the tools as well to make sure that no tools were missing or had been stolen. So they came to the first checkpoint, counted up the number of men, counted up the number of tools, and the commanding officer said, there is a shovel missing here. And there's a Japanese commander. And as time went on, he gave the soldiers an opportunity to own up, but nobody owned up. And so he got more and more angry, and he picked up um, a submachine gun, and he said, if you don't tell me who stole this shovel, I'm going to shoot you all. And they knew that he was going to follow through on that. So one of the prisoners stepped forward and admitted to having done it. So the commanding officer put the machine gun aside and he picked up one of the shovels and he beat the soldier to death in front of the others. So the others picked up his bloodied corpse and they carried it to the next checkpoint where once again they were all counted and they counted the number of shovels and there wasn't a shovel missing. They had miscounted the number of shovels at the first checkpoint. This story got out amongst the, the, the prison camp, and from that time onwards, the men started to treat one another as brothers. Because that one act of sacrificial love, that one act of laying down a life for everybody else, broke the power of selfishness. And that's why if we want to be productive as a church, if we want to be significant as a church, we need to be a loving church. I have to say that in every generation, people need to see Christ followers who are prepared to lay down their lives for other people. The first generation of, of believers, the, well, the first generation that was alive when Jesus died, they saw it themselves. They saw Jesus dying on the cross. But every subsequent generation needs to see that kind of sacrificial love. And the only place that they're going to see it is in the church. And we would expect to see it in the church, wouldn't we? Because if God is our Father, then we would expect to carry His DNA. And what does the Bible says? say? The Bible says that God is love. It says, for God so loved the world. The Bible says, yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Very seldom would anyone die for a, a righteous man. For a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But Christ demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. God is love. God has poured out his love into our hearts, it says in Romans 5, by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. We carry God's DNA. We have his spirit in us. And so we would expect to see sacrificial love in us as a body. John 15, 12, and I leave you with this. Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Shall we pray? Father God, a very humbling challenge for us this morning because we know that we do fall short of your love so much. We thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross so that we are declared righteous before you even though we do lack love. But Father, even as we have been declared righteous, we actually want to become righteous, Lord. We want to be transformed from glory to glory. 
we want to become more loving people. And so we commit ourselves to this, to this Father. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing in our lives and in our church. So that in this time, in this generation here in Harare, people would truly get to see sacrificial love. They may not have seen Jesus dying on the cross, but they will get to see us. And so help us, uh, empower us to carry out this, this very challenging um, work. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.